0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Solar Tech Talk. My name is Aaron Bingham. I'm here with Kate Collardson. We're both product managers over at Baywa RE Solar Systems, and we're here to geek out about solar energy technology and everything that comes with it. Kate, how are you doing? What's going on?
1: I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. Thanks. How are things with you, Aaron?
0: Things are great. I am very excited that I'm I'm halfway through the series of vaccination so- shots and and that much closer to retor- returning to uh, a, a bit of normalcy I hope. So, um hope other listeners out there are on the same journey for themselves.
1: I'm right there with you. One one shot down, one shot to go. I'm, I'm doing it over the weekend and uh, I'm stoked, so ready.
0: What's what's been going on in the renewable energy world for you, Kate? Have you have you seen any articles that you thought were really interesting or Wanted to share with our listeners.
1: Yeah, uh, I recently read an article in Solar Solar Builder magazine. It's from Tom Tanzi, the uh, chairman of the SunSpec Alliance, and this article is about how uh, SunSpec is is working to uh, simplify the systems required for uh, for rapid shutdown. They recognize that the the requirements uh, for m- module level uh, shutdown have added a, a ton of complexity to our PV systems that, that we're installing on, on, on roofs every day. And so we, uh, and so th- this article talks about a, an effort to, to simplify some of those requirements. Um, we will definitely put a link to that article in our show notes uh, for folks to check out. What about you? Have you uh, read anything that you want to share?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, PV Magazine actually recently published an article uh, written by David Wagman titled Indiana Regulators Slash Net Metering and Advise Solar Owners to Buy a Battery. I-, I thought that this was really funny because this is right in line with some of the conversations that we've had in previous episodes regarding what's happening in California with their uh, NEM3 conversation. We talked a little bit about Um, This with Carter Lavin when we had him on the show a couple episodes ago. And the article goes into some detail around a um, decision that was recently made by one of the utilities in southwestern Indiana. They decided to slash their net metering rates for all of their customers with PV systems, with customer-owned PV systems installed. And I was, I was, you know, both disappointed to read and a little bit heartened <laughs> to to hear the solution that they're advertising. Um, so the the article talks about how the rates being slashed for Indiana's net metering program or for this specific utilities net metering program are going to cause the the payback rates for customers who've had solar energy installed to dramatically increase, which is definitely disappointing. The solution that they describe is one that I think we'll be hearing more and more though. Their advice to customers who don't want to experience a longer payback for their systems was to invest in a battery backup system that would allow them to use their solar, their excess solar power anytime when they don't have access to solar energy for the site. And this is something that we are going to see more and more um, as battery system prices come down, as homeowners deal with things like Utility shutoffs for whatever reason, out here in California, we have utility shutoffs related to um, risk of fire. But in Texas, we heard about utility shutoffs related to extreme weather events. Uh, These things are all going to continue to happen. And so folks who invest in solar energy are really going to need to consider protecting themselves by adding a battery backup to the system that they've installed. There, There are lots of benefits to adding batteries to your PV system. One of them is that if your utility tells you that they are going to diminish the um, net metering rates that they're applying to your particular situation. Uh, you'll be able just to switch the way that that battery is operating and um, you know try to focus on zero export as opposed to any other objective with your system and ensure that you're getting the maximum benefit from your PV array. So it really is akin to kind of future-proofing your system. And I think that in the long run, the utilities are going to find that this is going to create some challenges for them because as batteries become less expensive and folks start to invest in them along with a renewable energy generation source, they're going to have less and less of a reason to rely on their utilities. And, you know, we may find that folks eventually, when the technology supports the application, are able to move away from their utilities entirely, which I know is a dream for a lot of folks. So we'll see what comes of it in in southwestern Indiana. My heart goes out to all of those folks who've installed solar energy in recent years and are looking at a longer payback, this is of course not an ideal outcome. And uh, you know, it's, it's another example of how important it is that we all try to get involved, um, speak up when utilities are looking at changing rates, try to figure out how you can become a part of that conversation and, and do your best to influence that conversation in a direction that's going to protect your PV customers.
1: That's exactly right. And um, for for listeners who are curious how to figure out how to get involved, I'll uh, remind you that check out your state level solar association. If it's a sea affiliate or um, a, a different affiliate, most all states have them. And, and it's worth joining that group to to advocate on behalf of, of- our industry, And I would direct folks to our episode where we spoke with Carter Lavin from CALSA. He had other great recommendations for how to get involved in, in these kinds of discussions um, at the state and, and uh, public utilities commissions level.
0: All right, Kate, let's get into the meat of our episode today. This month, we're going to be focused on some of the basics of PV racking. We're going to have a closer look at what standards apply and how they impact product choice, product design, and system design. We've got some great guests today. Why don't you take us through it?
1: Yeah, I, I just want to say, racking is, is often undervalued component to our PV arrays. And, um, you know, a lot of people think of of racking as, as just extruded aluminum and there's not much exciting to, to talk about there, but, but we have some great guests today to, to take us through why it's more than just extruded metal. <laughs> We've got Jeff Spees and Lewis Wolfenden. Both of these folks are are experts in um, in PV and racking specifically. So uh, let's hop on over to that interview and see what they have to say. Everyone, we're excited to be joined today uh, by Jeff Spees from Planet Plansets and Lewis Wolfenden from Net Zero Solar. We're gonna talk with these two about racking and codes that affect racking. And so if you wouldn't mind, uh, we'll start with Jeff. Could you give us a little intro? Tell us about Uh yourself, why you are qualified to speak about these things.
2: Uh, well, my name is Jeff Spees. I'm president of Planet Sets, And for a number of years, I worked in the racking and mounting sector of the industry. I'd uh, gotten involved early on with the encouragement of Don Warfield, who's the president of the NABSEP board. I'm a bo- NABCEP board member that uh, the 2703 standard was going to have a lot of impact on racking systems. So I joined the standard technical panel in about 2011, 2012, and uh, became the task group leader for bonding, grounding, and corrosion and sat on a couple of the other task groups. Uh, And in subsequent years, I've been engaged in a number of other code and standard related activities. 2014, joined the board of CALSA, the California Solar and Storage Association, where I uh, shortly thereafter was appointed to be the codes and standards chair. So I've been heavily engaged in the development, dissemination, interpretation, and mediation of codes and standards for however many years that's been now.
3: So hey, I'm Lewis Woffenden. So I have a long history in solar including growing up for 18 years off grid, been working in the industry since 2003 and uh, since 2009 here at Net Zero Solar in Tucson. So I come to the this uh, conversation kind of with an installer perspective as well as a background in electrical electrical engineering. I'm not a mechanical but person but uh, and and looking forward to uh, uh, chatting today.
1: Great. Great. Thanks so much both of you. So Let's just dive into 2703. Uh, Jeff, can you tell us more about why it is a thing, where it came from and and what what it does?
2: So UL 2703 is the standard. Code required standard that dictates the uh, racking system, which uh, for flat plate modules. So, essentially, conventional modules, we think about it usually metal framed, that would then mount into a racking system that would either be, you know, fixed to the ground in some fashion or attached to the roof. So, the standard that dictates the bonding and grounding, the fire classification, and the mechanical loading is found within UL 2703. The bonding and grounding is code required. The fire classification uh, attribute of 2703 is code required. The mechanical loading is not. Uh, It is a helpful item to have, but the code compliance for structural is a lot more complex than 2703 in and of itself. But 2703, from a mechanical loading perspective, will establish some valuable parameters such as the maximum pounds per square foot that you can have on that module on that racking system. So that said, 2703 effectively is the rules that pertain to bonding, grounding, and fire classification as well as mechanical. And also how the system goes together. So essentially when you're getting your rack mounted system uh, listed through one of the uh, certification organizations, the NERDLS, nationally recognized test labs. They would evaluate all the piece parts, how they go together, make sure everything fits, make sure that uh, you've got solid, reliable connections, and then you're going to document that in your installation manual, which becomes a legal document and code required that you assemble the racking system per those installation instructions. So in a nutshell, 2703 is the rule book by which racking systems have to be installed and inspected.
1: Thanks. That's a great synopsis. Uh, Louis, from an installer perspective, you've been in the industry since 2703 became something that racking manufacturers had to (laughs) comply with. What have you seen from an installer perspective? What changes were made uh, since, since 2703?
3: Yeah, so I guess I think overall, I mean, it is a standard, so standardization is where it really has led. You know, back back before, there were a lot of people doing a lot of different things, people home building, fracking, uh, manufacturers doing some funky, making some funky choices about how they design things. And for the installer, that leads to some uncertainty of what is the right way to do this? Do I feel confident about this is staying on somebody's roof for the next, you know, two and a half, three decades? And then also inspectors, right? Uh, both, uh, both plan reviewers and inspectors were a lot more of an issue. Now, as all these standards have really been developed and it takes time really to roll out into consciousness of manufacturers, installers, plan reviewers, and inspectors, but as that's happened, it's just gotten so much easier to know that you are building something that's mechanically solid, meets code. Uh, you know, particularly, you know, grounding methods were probably the most common reason I would be out on site, quote, discussing slash arguing with an inspector. And uh, there was uh, usually it really depended on both the inspector and how their day was going, what they wanted. And that changed a lot. Um, So having methods where it's like, Here's the listing it says, do it this way. We're doing it this way. It's a lot quicker to get that sign off and get onto the, the next residential job uh, that you need to take care of.
2: And I'd like to always think that I don't argue with inspectors, but I educate them. I think that's probably a more productive way sometimes to frame the conversation.
3: <laughs> it, it, it can be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: do they appreciate that.
2: Uh, you know, 90% of them do. Um,
0: yeah. You can't please everybody, can you? <laughs> uh, no, no. 90%s not bad odds.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there does come a point where it's uh you're just doing it the way that they want to do it, and that's that. You hopefully that's a 2 to 5% of the time, not a uh <laughs> not a not a 20% of the time. Exactly. <laughs>
0: So it sounds like um, implementing these standards played a big role in aiding our industry and in kind of maturing a little bit, growing up, ensuring that you know when a system designer is designing a system that is then installed by someone and then inspected by an AHJ, that you you all have a common point of reference to look at. Should there be any any points where somebody needs to be educated or argued with or whatever the case may be, can you think of ways in which the implementation of 2703 specifically affected system design or affected maybe like the
2: the products that you were choosing to use? Yeah, it's had huge impact. Uh, You know, the first is that you need to have an approved module from the manufacturer's installation instructions, which limits which modules you're allowed to use legally. So there's, I don't know how many modules there are manufacturers in the world, hundreds if not thousands. And it's a constantly churning cycle. So you can't just buy any old module that comes off the boat and put it into a system legally. You can do that, but it's not legal. So that approved module list, and if you look at like the big bracket companies like Iron Ridge, their approved module list, how many hundreds of modules are on that thing now? (laughs) It's it's a lot. So that's one of the biggest impacts. And I just got off a meeting before this one with ULs has a task group for 61730, the new standard for modules where we're attempting to do away with that mess, and it's a mess, to try to have a frame construction characteristic code on the module. So it will tell you if it will comply with the racking system. See what, yeah, I see. That is very exciting. (laughs) (laughs) So that's one of the biggest challenges, one of the biggest impacts that it's had, but Lewis can probably Psyched others, I'm sure.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to think if any others jump to mind. I mean, certainly grounding has been very helpful, integrated grounding systems, right? Which we all, I think, knew back in the day that that was a perfectly reasonable method. And... (laughs) the standard and the testing that comes with that standard for each of these products, being able just to do equipment grounding very simply at one, one spot or two spots or whatever the, the manufacturer's manual says has been super helpful. That's probably one that the biggest one that jumps to mind for me.
2: Yeah no doubt integrated grounding was probably the that, that is the reason why we have the module classification. Or I should say the approved module list is because they want to make sure that that particular grounding, those pins line up with the module frame and it doesn't crack the glass and it holds on. You know, there's a lot of variables, but the whole premise of the approved modulus grew really out of the integrated grounding super exciting development. I
0: can't, I can't wait until it's just like, you know, what's the shape of your particular cookie? Let's put it in, you know, just
2: that's, yeah, that's what we're hoping for. And uh, right now these proposals are going into the UL 61730 standard technical panel through the UL CSDS system, where then you'll start to get some preliminary comments and then they'll be further refined and discussed and then voted on and fingers crossed. But we have to get buy-in from module manufacturers. And therein lies the challenge. It's difficult, again, because you got hundreds, maybe thousands of module manufacturers that now have to put this extra code. That's what we we're discussing today is how we would communicate the module construction characteristics. And my suggestion ha- has been sometime that we create a several-digit code where that first digit might Be representing your module frame material, and the second digit might be the coating thickness, and the third character could represent, uh, you know, another parameter that one would need to identify so that your racking system can say, We can work with this, 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 and this. If you can have a system like that, that the module manufacturers put on their labels, then it's something the inspector can validate when they're looking at the installation instructions. So rather than having to have an approved module list with hundreds or thousands of modules now you just have to verify that it matches up with that construction code that's the concept fingers yeah. crossed
1: i like it. I, it I hope that works out
2: i certainly do too I, this has been five or six years since i first came out with the idea and uh, you can tell how much of a uh, you know a, a procrastinator i am here we are five or six years later finally moving forward but i i have uh, in my defense i no longer the task group leader for bonding and grounding. So essentially, once I stepped down from that role, um, you know, I wasn't driving that as hard. And it's just been within the last six months that this effort has been taken up by Colleen O'Brien, who's the principal engineer now for, I think, both 2703 and 61730. And so she seems to be a very competent individual and she's uh, helping drive this proposal forward into the 61730 standard technical panel where all the module manufacturers now have to buy in.
1: We'll keep an eye on that and see how that goes. Another code, set of codes that is relevant to our industry, but perhaps something we don't talk about as as often as we talk about UL standards is uh, ASCE. And I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit, Jeff, about ASCE 7 and um and the changes that came in in twenty sixteen, and what that means for us as an industry.
2: I'll first say it's the most confusing aspect of code that relates to solar is the structural aspects. Electrical code is, uh, you know, litigated to the nth degree, and everybody has been hyper focused on it for years. The building and residential code, that dictates things like fire safety and structural is not well understood, even by the people who are experts in the industry. So, Whenever these conversations come up, I end up having to call engineers who I respect, and then you've got, and then it becomes a research project for every conversation, it seems. So that said, uh, ASCE, the American Society of Civil Engineers 7, ASCE 7 is the structural standard that is codified by the building and residential code. And that standard, addresses a whole host of considerations, things like snow load considerations, things like wind loading considerations. Those are the two major things structurally that we think about when we're building a PV system on a roof or on the ground is, will it blow away in a windstorm or will it get crushed in a heavy snow load? And uh, uh, there was a a pretty significant change that occurred in 2016 for the ASCE 7-16, that's the year that it was developed, uh, where they change what are called the pressure coefficients in the manner in which wind load is... Uh, calculated to affect the PV array for both uplift and downforce. And uh, what it really comes down to, and I actually had a presentation we did last year at the NABCEP conference. Maybe we'll touch on that again this year, but I did an analysis for my good buddy, Dwayne Menton at Quick Mount PV, where he looked at the number of roof attachments that are the maximum space you can have between roof attachments based upon the ASCE 710 old structural standard that's code regard and the newer ASCE 716. And I guess the worst case scenario is we saw that in, in Florida, in the coastal areas, you could get as many as four times more roof attachments required when ASCE 716 eventually gets adopted by the Florida building code. Right now, they're still on a fairly old version of ASCE 7. I don't know how soon they might adopt ASC seven sixteen, but when they do, solar rooftop solar installers are going to need to become really good friends with the roof attachment manufacturers because they're going to be buying a lot more of them.
1: Well, wow, that's going to that's going to impact price a lot four times.
2: Yeah. And let's, let's try to better understand what the impact is, but that's what the numbers calculate to when you run the calculations that said no change in Tucson. So Lewis, you're, you're golden. <laughs> that was my it's, it's <laughs> yeah. the calculations change, but the impact on roof attachment spacing doesn't have much impact in Arizona where I also live. Thank goodness.
3: Yeah, it's definitely uh, yeah, it could, could have been worse as far as things go here. And also, I mean, so, so many different jurisdictions are just slow to adopt new standards. So, you know, Southern Arizona, we're, depending on what it is, two to four years behind on whatever, whatever what, depending on the type of code and the cycle that we're on. So it, it, it allows us a little bit of time to learn from everybody who is in other parts of the country who adopt a little faster, which in some ways is kind of a, a nice advantage to, ha- to have a little bit of head, uh, heads up of what's coming down the road.
2: But Arizona's weird, too, because Arizona has uh, every AHJ establishes which code version they want to use, which makes it challenging when we're generating plan sets, because we have to look at Maricopa County, 2008 National Electric Code. That was before Rapid Shutdown existed. It was kind of nice, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh.
0: That sounds like... A lot of fun.
2: <laughs> well, it, it can be confusing. It can be good. Obviously, those people in Maricopa County, when they're doing roof-mounted systems, don't use need to use rapid shutdown so they can use a good old-fashioned string inverter. Uh, but that will come to an end whenever Maricopa County decides to update their code. And Sometimes building departments go from like 2008 to the latest code. It, it will make your head spin. So what we find a lot of contractors do, and I'd be curious to see what, what you're doing, Lewis, is you've got like maybe six different uh, major jurisdictions that all have their own how do you do you just go, try to comply with the latest code when you're out there designing systems
3: so generally i mean for for electrical codes you know 2017 is is generally better for what we want to do for most reasons and as well as safer so it just kind of depends on the jurisdiction usually i in fact will try to submit using the latest codes, if they kick it back and say, hey, no, we want something older. I'm like, all right, it's worse, but, but here we go. We'll do that. But, you know, I think that is part of that ongoing communications with the AHJs is also uh, kind of bringing them up to speed on what's, what's coming in the next code cycles, what's safer, what's better, what's simpler, what's changed, certainly with the changes for the 2018 on, on fire code setbacks and issues around there. You know, that's been it's it's more complex. <laughs> yeah, but it's a lot better in terms of a lot of uh, uh challenges that we have for for those issues in in the residential code and the IFC.
2: Yeah, I, I developed some uh kind of uh training modules and cheat sheets that help you kind of decipher the newer fire setbacks and pathways. And while it is more complex, once you get used to it, it's not terribly Difficult. The tricky part is there's more room for judgment and subjectivity, and that's where things can get tricky. But in fairness, most building departments, if you know the basic rules, haven't been overly onerous uh, with the relaxed... Uh, and I've been told that I shouldn't use the term relaxed setbacks and pathways, but that's the way I look at them. Cause before they were, you know, you had to have two pathways up each roof with PV, which was horrible. And that 36 inch Ridge setback, which was kind of bad. That's now 18 inches for most roofs and only a single pathway for most roofs. And I would say, when we're doing plans, we only get those kicked back once in a great while. So we I think we're making good judgment calls, but sometimes there's a lot of gray area because roofs are come in a myriad of different shapes and configurations and that complicates things.
1: Yeah, it definitely does. Real quick for the benefit of any audience members who might not uh, be as up on the lingo as we are, can AHJ. Lewis, will you <laughs> explain what an AHJ is?
3: Yeah, we have all these terms that get thrown around. And uh, yeah, so AHJ is just authority having jurisdiction. So that's your building, low city to building department. Uh, That's your county building department, might be federal in some places, but it's the folks you have to answer to for making sure that your plan set and your installation is correct, both at at plan review and then inspection of your system.
2: There's 18,000 of them here in the United States. Just 18,000? 18, so 18,000 jurisdictions. In the state of California alone, there's 500.
1: Is it, in, in some states, well, ha, do, do you happen to know how many states have the ability to choose which, like for each AHA to choose which code cycle there are they are on? For instance, in Colorado, the state is officially on 2020. Hmm. However... Each AHJ can choose whether or not they're supposed to. They, they they really shouldn't. Everybody should be on 2020, but they still can choose to be on 2008 if they are, if they want to, which some still are.
2: It, it, it's it's legally tricky. And I was in a meeting last week with Ian Hartage, who is one of the higher ranking officials in the fire the, the fire service in California. And California, like Colorado, does adopt code at the state level legally, a jurisdiction, a building department can impose requirements that are stricter than the code, but never more lenient. That is not legally permissible. Now, what he said, which pertains to your comment or question is, He said, listen, uh, just because the building department approved it, just because plan check approved it and inspector approved it doesn't mean that it's legal. It just means that you got it through that building department. But the legal responsibility to follow code is the the licensed contractor's responsibility. They have legal liability to file a code. So if they don't follow the code and the building department approved it and there's a fire, that contractor, plain and simple, has no avenue for recourse. I know. Yeah. Wow is right. And this is something that doesn't get discussed very often in solar. So there is a legal obligation responsibility from a licensed contractor to follow the code, even if the building department doesn't understand it. Now that said, if the building department supersedes code and makes you do something else that wouldn't follow code and you've got documentation, then you've got some legal cover, but that's a different situation.
3: Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, And from a plan reviewer standpoint, an inspector standpoint, my experience here in Arizona is that um, everybody is incredibly busy and slammed. And if, if, if as an industry we are expecting that plan reviewers and inspectors are catching things from contractors, that's unfortunately not not the reality. Um, These are very cursory inspections, especially, uh, and there are plenty of ways that contractors who are either uninformed or hopefully not, but unscrupulous can install systems that are not safe, not good practice, that are not going to last. Uh, and they will probably get signed off nine out of 10 times in a lot of places.
2: I, I totally agree with Lewis and it's an interesting issue. So is, is doing PV that difficult? Well, oftentimes I would say it's just as easy as filling out the permit application, installing it, and it's done because there isn't that kind of scrutiny and oversight. There are certain jurisdictions that are really good, maybe too good at scrutiny and oversight. (laughs) But I would say that uh, what we find is there are more that are lax. Sometimes we see inspectors that have to do 12 or more inspections in a day, and that includes drive time. How do you do that? You aren't getting up on the roof. I guarantee that.
0: No. Yeah, that seems to see seems to be something that I'm hearing more and more is that inspections are happening without anybody getting on the roof. Um, you know, there's really no detailed verification of what's going on with the installation, which you know having having well established standards and and best practices that we all follow certainly can help combat what would be you know uh, viewed as a potential downside of kind of that opportunity for people to play it a little fast and loose but it, it, it's it's not a it's not a cure all right like there still are going to be cases where people either acting out of like you said Lewis either ignorance or something worse <laughs> um you know can can make mistakes that impact the longevity of the installation that they're working on
2: yeah it's it, you know it, it worries me quite a bit because uh Unfortunately, when problems do crop up, our industry takes a black eye as a whole. Yeah. So there, you know, my obviously I've been heavily engaged in trying to figure out what the rules are and communicate them more clearly and make sure people follow the ones that are most critically important. And uh, it's an ongoing challenge. So I would say that uh, we see some companies that are really responsible. Not to say that they don't make mistakes. Certainly, we all do. But I would say there there are. A, a, you know, a good contingent in solar industry, a good third of companies I see really are comp- competent and diligent about following the rules. And then there's another third that are, you know, they might try to do it, but there's some ignorance. And then you've probably got a third that are straight up sleazebag, you know, contractors who you shouldn't be doing business with, but that's contracting. So. <laughs>
3: Yeah, and Aaron, feel free to, or Kate, feel free to redirect if I'm going too far off here. But like Jeff said, this is something definitely that I worry about. And I think about this balance, right? Because we look at soft costs in Australia and Europe, and we hear about how much lower costs are. And then we look at here. And as we have, you know, things like uh, what NREL is doing with solar app, expedited permitting processes and other jurisdictions have done, uh, and fewer plan sets and so on. And it's a really interesting for an industry-wide Wide choices, right? As we're all trying to cut costs, we're all trying to be more competitive, and I think most of us, a majority at least, are, are are trying to do a good job and also, you know, be around for the long term. And it's definitely something that I that I think of and 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 stress it a little bit about often is just what is that balance as an industry for us to strike?
0: Yeah, and how do you make sure that? you know, a homeowner that you're pitching a system to is aware of some of those potential pitfalls when they're, when they're making their, their final
3: decision. Yeah. And, you know, we get a lot of those calls. We're not a a service focused company just because, uh, you know, it's just a very challenging, uh, it's challenging. And we focus on, on new installations and serving our, our customer base, but we get those calls, several of those calls every week, leaking roof. uh, I need to take my system off. It's not working. Uh, and installers are either, you know, unwilling to, are, are still in business and, and maybe in another name, or, but unwilling to come and service the system or they are out of business. Um, so it's a, it's an enormous challenge for, for consumers at this point for our industry.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And un- unlike it being kind of uh, similar to a purchase of a car, right, where it's this big upfront cost for someone with a car, you can usually take it to almost any mechanic to have it fixed, but with a with a solar installation if it was installed improperly the first time if another installer touches that installation is am i correct that they assume some of the liability <laughs> for what's going on there and have to do not, it?
2: in the eyes of the customer well, I they mean do. yeah <laughs>
3: yeah I'm definitely not a lawyer and and sure, but <laughs> our lawyer has our lawyer has definitely put together specific wording around that but it's hard to figure that out And like Jeff said, it's more about what's that actual personal relationship, you know, and how they feel about it. For us, like we don't take anything on until after we've, uh, they've paid a significant inspection fee and we look over everything. And if they're not willing to clean it up, uh, here's your inspection report and best of luck to you. But um, this is not something that we can help you with.
2: (laughs) And I I would argue that is one of the most significant arguments in favor of a proper plan set, which is what our company does in full disclosure but you know if you've got a, a stranded system is sometimes what i hear them referred to you know the installer's gone out of business if that homeowner had, was wise enough to get a copy of the plans and you know save it on a google drive somewhere or save a i, I have a printed copy of my plans up for my system but if you have that and there is a problem that installer is not around a competent company like net zero in tucson can look at your existing plans Sometimes they might be able to diagnose your problem without even having to go to the job site if they've got a good set of plans and they can see, okay, they built it like this and, oh, gee, that's a common weak link. Let's check this on monitoring. Yep, that's probably it. And then they could have the replacement parts in their truck when they go out to the site the first time, rather than having inspect and then come back and get the parts and go back out a second time. So the, that is what I consider to be one of the most solid arguments for the importance of a plan set long-term. Now, I think they also serve the installation crews, so they know how to do it right, and the building department that should be looking at a plan set to validate the code compliance for safety considerations.
1: Yeah, really good point. To, to bring us back to racking.
2: I thought we solved that problem. That
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is not a problem. I want to talk about the future. And what do you think is going to happen aside from the new UL 613? Seven three zero. That's
2: right. Yeah. yeah. Um, um,
1: and yeah. What what else do you see? What changes do you see in the future in, in mounting systems?
2: You know, it's interesting because I I remember GTM years ago put out a racking report which I think they charged four thousand dollars for, where they predicted in two years seventy percent of all residential rooftop installations would be rail free, and having mm-hmm. had the experience I did in working for Quick Mount. Where we developed a rail-free product or a rail list or however you want to call it, uh, I knew there was no way in hell that was ever gonna happen because they're just way too complicated. So if you had asked certain individuals five or seven years ago, what are the trends in racking somebody, they would many people who weren't involved in these products would have said, Oh, everybody's gonna be using something like ZEP, which even Solar City didn't use after a while. And 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 that just hasn't Transpired. Uh, I would say that rail-based racking to me still makes sense. And you know, the solar shingles would be another question I often get asked. I did a podcast series when I was at Quick Year, Mount years ago, and one of the episodes we focused on solar shingles. That was when Tesla first introduced the concept of their solar shingle. And here we are, how many years later? And there's how many of those systems out there? And they just doubled on the iteration price. five And they doubled the price just recently, too. Uh, And and so solar shingles are a cool looking technology, and I've seen it done well with certain products. Uh, But the fact is that compared to conventional solar panels mounted in a rack system, they're about twice the price, and therefore less practical for most consumers. That said, I see the future as standard PV modules in rail-based racking systems. (laughs) Is there going to be anything new under the sun? Possibly so, but gosh, you know what? You can't beat the utilitarian practicality of a couple rails with some roof attachments and a regular old module that when that module company's not around, you can use a different module that about the same size, but still fits that rack system. It's hard for me to see anything really displacing that
3: Soon. yeah i have to agree with jeff i mean there comes a point in mechanical design right where you can't get simpler and you can't get lighter so unless there are enormous breakthroughs in materials um which i don't anticipate and then i mean as a contractor you also have to take into account for any changes just the inertia factor of changing something up uh slowing your crews down you know, hard yeah. to slowing rack. everything down yeah R- so.
2: you can change inverters you can change modules changing racking's hard
3: it is yeah and you know it's you know everybody has that kind of muscle memory who's been out in the field and done that a lot it's even little changes kind can, can slow you down for for a week or two and then there are all these issues, certainly around backwards compatibility and parts. That and so I don't think this is actually going to happen. But I would love to if there were more standardization among manufacturers or a standard that actually defined it, because there's so many also, uh, you know, as well as orphan systems. There's a lot of orphan racking uh, mm. products out there that uh, you know you can't find parts for. If you can, they're expensive. Uh, if something breaks and so on, that that's definitely been an issue. You know, our very first systems in Net Zero were Conergy racking. It was perfectly fine, good racking. But now every time I send somebody out to service that, which is rare, it's, you know, i got to have the talk of do not break those. Uh, <laughs> we do not have replacements or and there's this one dusty box that has a few things left, but uh, don't break anything but these. And, you know, it, that's that you can definitely have a few of those types of stories of, of other rack, racking manufacturers as well.
1: Lewis, I'm curious if y'all have ever used rail free. Have you tried to go down that road and, and reversed, or are you just sticking? Have you always stuck with the wrong
3: the rails? We may have had one or two uh, uh, standing seam systems that were rail free that we tried. You know, we found that it's yes, it's reduced parts, uh, and that's important, but labor and design are such an large part of the cost stack of residential solar right now right like parts manufacturers from modules to inverters to everybody has worked really really hard and labor is still expensive and you want to take care of your people and workers comp is expensive and everything else and insurance and and keeping everything rolling so it just didn't really feel like something that fits for us and then of course in tucson we have a lot of uh tilt mount systems. so um obviously you're not going to use a rail free for anything like that so dipped our toe in and just not really worth it for us
2: and i i don't want to discount some areas where rail free is practical i would say there are sheathing attached systems that i do like uh, there are uh, the rail free metal panel roof attachments that i think have their place and i really do like them in certain applications it's trickier uh, just managing the conductors is a royal pain in the butt for rail free systems that's where the real the magic of doing that well is is that you have small hands and you can reach up under modules easily to get all your conductors clipped into place. Uh, and but I am seeing some cool innovations in racking. Uh, I've seen some newer racking systems come out here in the past year that have. I, I didn't think there'd be anything new under the Sun, but some new rail-based racking systems that I really like. Really neat features that save time and trouble and money and 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 improve shipping logistics. So there's some neat innovations that are on the uh that are n- not just on the horizon, they're already here.
1: Lewis, it's my understanding that y'all are a unirack shop. Is that mm-hmm. can you tell us about why you like Uniret?
3: Well, I mean, for one thing they've been around for a long time, right? So there's a, a lot of institutional knowledge. Also, we've used them for a very long time. So, you know, for over a decade and i have used them at uh, the other contractors I've been at before for net zero, you know, it's simple, it's solid, good folks. It's not local to us in Arizona, but they're definitely closer than and some other manufacturers. And a lot of it is just that inertia of like, once everybody's trained and used to using it, I don't want to try one new system a year and then have like 10, 15 different products that I've got to keep extra parts. And I got to remember when we send the crews out that this is a whatever system um, and so on. So, you know, it's interesting to you. And I hear Jeff say, hey, there's these new amazing products. Part of me is like, yeah, I want to see that. I want to try that. And then I think about, And for me, for the the tech kind of person and engineer in me, that's super fun. And if I were putting it on my own roof or whatever, but when you think about a profitable small company and efficiency, that nothing's, nothing's come along. That's, that's, you know, made us make that jump and they're good folks, good products. Um, you know, for a long time, actually we were, we were using a lot of quick mount attachment products, uh, especially when, when Jeff was over there and, you know, we've recently switched our, our tile attachments, uh, actually to Unirex product. It's a little different pieces that we like a little better pieces that are a little more challenging. And then certainly, you know, their flash lock product first for shingle roofs is really a super solid, um, and also really speed things speeds things up. Um, and that's so.
0: that's a relatively new solution, right? The flashlight is. I'm
3: I'm trying to remember when exactly it it's been year. within months, the last 12 months. months or
0: so. Yeah, I think yeah. it's within the last yeah. year that that was launched. Yeah. And and so you've had a good experience with that. Do you mind? sharing a little bit. Yeah.
3: More. Yeah. I mean, just being able to have the, so basically you have this, this foot that attaches to your truss, right. And you, rather than using a metal flashing up underneath the, the shingle, it's actually a ChemLink product. So you're actually putting this ChemLink sealant. That's super, super sturdy uh, in this hollow foot. Uh, Kate's got one, <laughs> you know, the, the videos are good too. I mean, for, for us, what we found is I'm always a little bit Hesitant to change any flashing method and any attachment and waterproofing method. So you know, it was good to see definitely their testing, but it's just so much faster. You definitely have to make sure everything's really clean and, and so on for that chem link to adhere properly. But it is so nice to be able to just roll. And, and you know, a, a flashing-based attachment of shingle is also f- pretty fast, but it, it takes it to another level of, uh, of speed.
2: I think Quickmount did a, a, a good job of raising awareness that the roof attachments are an important part of the system. And you heard earlier Lewis comment about you know service calls from customers and i i'm kind of curious i don't know if i have any statistics at all but i'd be curious to see a a poll done by a group of installers as to what the most common failure points are that they see i'm curious lewis what would you say roof leaks where does that rank in terms of problems that you see with older systems
3: I mean, I, it's pretty low, but it does happen. I would say we have had roof leaks more commonly something else is leaking on the roof and we're the last person who has been on the roof, um, (laughs) that just, you know, always an education process there. Yeah. It's not super high in terms of the amount of service, you know, for us, in addition to our initial installation we do uh, a one year in- inspection uh, that's included as part of our contract and that's also been really helpful because it you know if a sealant's looking like it didn't adhere properly you're not going to really get a sense of that one to two weeks in while you're you know doing the final inspection but one year in you can usually tell if there's something off and that's a chance to come back before actually there's a failure of the actual roof membrane and any water inside but you have an idea this looks like it's cracking this needs a little extra attention or even you know I don't think we run into this but if say the materials were clearly incompatible and weren't not adhering properly over time uh, so that's mm-hmm. been one tip for us that's that's helped us um, make sure that we don't get those kind of calls
1: it's an interesting question and I'd be curious maybe maybe we could pull our listeners uh, on that, what, what the most common failure point is. But I'd, I'd also be curious to know if it varies by location because in Tucson, a roof leak is probably not going to happen as often as, you know, what, whoa, tell me, Jeff, jump well,
2: in. People think well, it doesn't rain in Arizona. I know, it, I
1: live in rains, it's just know It,
2: it, it goes a long time between rains, but when it rains, sometimes it, rains. it really rains.
1: I know. Yeah, yeah,
2: no, for sure. But
1: you know what I'm saying. That I get it you know, in, in it's, it's not Washington state, maybe, <laughs>
3: maybe right.
1: roof leaks are a bigger problem.
3: Sure. I'd be, I'd be curious. I mean, it's certainly here. Those are la- tip, la- typically large rain events, right? So you might be talking in monsoon or, or winter rains as well. You're talking about a large volume, uh, which can definitely be interesting in terms of if there are issues with puddling, if there are issues with blockages of flow, if there, you know, there's definitely things that can pop up. Uh, yeah, y'all, y'all do system. get a lot
1: of uh, flat roofs down there, and anything yeah. like you're talking about blockage of, <laughs> if there's something blocking that uh, what are, scupper, is that yep. what it is? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Then, then man, you know, that that can be a problem.
2: Is not as big a problem as like sometimes I've driven around Portland area in Oregon. And you'll see these roofs that get like that moss kind of growing on them, right? Cause they're wet, always wet. But the worst ones are where the trees are growing out of the moss on the roof. So uh, that, that'll tear your roof up right there. <laughs> sure
4: enough.
3: Yeah, should have put solar there. The trees can't really get enough sunlight with the solars on that pitch. <laughs> nice.
2: Yeah, that's, that's a great uh, sales argument. See, I noticed you have a tree growing out of your roof. I got a solution for that, a solar panel. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jessica, Jessica, our producer, has chimed into the chat saying that she lives there and has never seen that.
2: I totally see oh. trees growing out of I'm not saying they're big trees, but yeah. you know, they're they're starting. Yeah. <laughs> Little saplings. I, I
1: can I can attest to that. That that is a thing for sure. That was, a, that was a great discussion. Thank you so much for being here. We really value both of you
3: and your insights. Awesome. Wonderful to uh, spend some time with you all today. And uh, thanks for the
2: great conversation. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Louis. I love you all. You're awesome.
1: <laughs> right back at gotcha,
2: you, Jeff. Uh, <laughs>
1: It was a great chat with Jeff and Lewis. I always appreciate talking to the two of them. I feel like every time I sit down with them, I, I learn something. And
0: yeah, they're terrific. They, they have so much expertise, uh, such a such a great history, working within the industry, advocating for the industry. Um, they're both just legends, titans, you know, whatever you want to call them they're wonderful guys
1: <laughs> for our next segment we had a chance to sit down with connor morrison over at unirac to talk more about uh the products that they have and um their take on on the codes and standards and how they manufacture to those uh to those requirements so let's hop on over to that interview
0: yeah and uh, advise our our listeners to keep your ears open for some exciting news from unirac we're here with Connor Morrison from UNIRAC. He's a residential product manager. Hey Connor, uh, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about what you do over at UNIRAC? Uh,
5: yeah, so um, I'm the residential product manager here at UNIRAC. So I sort of oversee our um, our residential products, which are our railed system, our rail list system, so solar mount and SFM uh, respectively. I also um, am in charge of a lot of the electrical accessories that go with those, as well as the mounting components. So, that's our eBoss line, uh, flash kit probe, flash lock, um, tile replacements, tile hooks, those sorts of things. So, I oversee a lot of those. I work with our product development team um, and our sales team to sort of figure out what people need in the market, what trends are out there. Work with the PD engineers to define what those requirements are for our customers. They make it happen. So, all of the cool things that get Design and stuff is—it's so really them, not me. Um, I work with supply chain to kind of make it happen on that side too. So.
1: Kind of to kick us off, would you uh, comment on your knowledge of UL2703 and where that came from and what's happened at UNIRAC since that that standard um, has been introduced?
5: Yeah, you, 2703 it's, it's mostly focused on electrical bonding and fire uh, is sort of the main focus. I think a lot of that was just to, uh, it's, it's sort of a safety standard. I think the origin was, was thinking about people who might be on the roof and uh, you've got solar panels generating electricity and there's a lot. Things that can happen with that, so uh, yeah, UL 2703 is sort of whatever derived to control that. Yet for us, it. Uh I mean, I would say just as a blanket statement, all of these codes and standards are things that we think of immediately before designing any sorts of products or anything like that. So a lot of our, what we do with our products is actually defined by them. UL 2703 particularly is, you know, for us, it's mostly bonding and grounding, how we do integrated bonding. Um, I think we we led the charge of a number of years ago now um, by integrating bonding into all of our clamps and to, designing devices and things that made it so that doing that wasn't an extra step. It's something that came in the system and something that just kind of came as a package product. So a lot of that's what what we look at upfront and it determines, I mean, it's, it's as small as like what, bonding pin we use and what the shape of that bonding pin is and how it interacts with anodization on different module frames and what thicknesses of anodization measured in microns. You know, it it gets very technical pretty quick, but yeah, no, we we run all the way through it. And that's been a big one for us.
1: Tell me, do you Know much about ASCE seven. Can you talk about how that affects your job as a manufacturer?
5: Yeah. um, So that's a lot around kind of how you apply loads to the system. It defines a lot of, um, you know, wind loading, snow loading seismic everything and how that works with our system. And so we do a lot of work. Um, It's kind of a a balance between that and a couple other different things. Some some jurisdictions have their own things they like to add to it. And we have to take a lot of that into consideration as we design and as we um, test our products. But yeah, a lot of it's looking at how the A- ASCE 716 will be applied to our system or if whether it's something that exists or something new and then look at things like the, you know, the aluminum design manual and how strength plays in there and, um, By kind of looking at those two things, it can help us figure out how to optimize our products. And I mean, it's not just those two things, but um, where we need to add strength to a system, where can we optimize a system, um, what are the areas of the country where we're going to see the really big extremes, and and how do we design our products so that they don't just perform well in sort of most of the country, but you know, what's that other five percent after the ninety-five percent is covered? Where are those extremes? How can we make a product that Um, performs to the extremes that are defined by those conditions and um, take it from there so and a lot of that's around 716 we've done things with clamps where we change the module gap to change how much winds flowing through the system at any time um, so that there's less of a wind load on it and it can hit higher wind loads I mean that's one example but there's a lot of a lot of things that we do like that that's really guided by those. So
1: So what I'm hearing in that statement is that as a manufacturer, you're able to react. We we were talking uh, with with Jeff about how ASCE 716, as it's adopted in Florida, could quadruple the amount of attachments required um, in certain wind zones. And and so what I'm hearing from you is that as a manufacturer, you are working to to kind of counteract that and design your product. So that you're not necessarily quadrupling the amount of, of attachments.
5: Correct. Yeah. That actually, and and like Miami Dade and a few of those guys um, were actually the people we were really looking at and talking to when we designed that product. Um, and so a lot of that we did we did a long time ago and it's now starting to kind of take effect. And some of those changes are are starting to become uh, prevalent in those markets as 16 kind of rolls out. So yeah, and and a lot of it's changing how they look at wind zones and things like that. And, yeah, so, uh, it's a big consideration for, for us.
1: In the PV world, we, t- we talk a lot about, we, we know a lot about UL, we know a lot about the NEC, we know manufacturers know how to get involved. Um, are you involved as a manufacturer in the, the ASCE creation process?
5: So we do, yeah, so we have, I would say there's a, a few things going on that. So we have two uh, folks on staff that are for sure um, involved. They sit in, um, actually committees that work with a lot of the UL side, so UL2703, and they do a lot of work like kind of looking at the the rules, the new uh, updates to those codes and things like that. So we have people on staff that do that. Um, On the ASCE side, um, most of our PD engineers are subject matter experts in that field. So they look at it a lot. We also have a commercial services team that goes even deeper with that. And then, yeah, we work with uh, third parties that are even closer to that. So we have a lot of people looking at what we're doing which kind of creates a little bit of synergy. So the guys that are controlling that on the ASCE get a lot of our perspective and get a lot of what we're dealing with on our side. And then they can bring that back. And it's, it's a nice little process there, but yeah, we have a lot of people on staff that are involved in kind of both sides, the UL and the ASCE.
0: Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of ways in which the, Requirements spelled out in these in these two standards have affected product design overall. But can you can you give us a few more examples? Run through a few more examples of ways in which Unirax um, product design has had to respond to these changes, especially in those extremes. You know, in the areas where customers would would see the most challenging applications um, when it comes to mounting modules.
5: Yeah. Um, so there's especially I think I think high wind is really a lot of the focus as far as where the new code changes have impacted us. Um, so, you know, there's clamp design, which is, I mean, that's module, whatever gap width and stuff, but it's actually how it actually interface interfaces with the rail itself. What is that connection point? What's the strength there and how much load can it take from the panel being pushed on it when there are high wind conditions? And what can we do from a product side to increase that load, which then brings you to the rail? How can you change your rail, uh, in a way that's optimized to handle that, um, which you can, you can optimize for wind and then realize you've, you've completely lost everything on snow. And then you have to go back to snow. No. And so it's this kind of work it in until so you find the the happy medium there. But then it's the rail the attachment how does that work what are your attachments doing is there is sliding issues with how it slides what what sort of things do those conditions suddenly present in the loading that they're prescribing how does that affect a what you've got currently and then b what can you change and i can't go too specific in terms of exactly what we're looking at sure, um fair enough but it's something that's right <laughs> we are very yes we are very uh deeply evaluating at a, a rapid pace currently so
0: so one thing that came up when we were chatting with Jeff and with Lewis and Lewis in particular was that Lewis is seeing a lot of value in, uh, in the flash lock, which is a new product that Unirac launched. I think within the last 12 months, is that, is that right?
5: It was launched just before SPI 2019. And then okay. in 2019, we had kind of had our, our giant sample display that was gone on the first day.
0: Tell us a little bit more about that product and how you're seeing it used in the field. How's deployment going?
5: A lot of people really like it. I think the two kind of the big value props that people are seeing is one, it it streamlines your installation in terms of the the actual physical work you have to put into mounting an attachment. A lot of times when you're using a, whatever, an eight inch flashing sort of the standard, and that's what we've got. You're, you're, You're up there with a pry bar and you're on your hands and knees trying to pry up shingles and it's super hot. And shingles, when you pry them, a lot of times they tend to stick. And so your pry bar kind of misses and it just tears your shingles up. And you end up damaging the roof pretty bad. And then you slip your little flashing in there and then tighten down your screw. And by that time, you spend a lot of time getting the actual flashing in there, sticking it down, sticking down your attachment. Um, With Flashlock, you skip that first step. Um, so you preserve the integrity of the roofers work, putting in that roof. You're not going to touch that. You simply find your Raptor, drill your hole, put in your flash lock. And then the nice thing about the flash lock is, um, it's an actually, it's a sealant reservoir that, um, is once it's sealed down to the roof, you inject your sealant, which pressurizes that reservoir and drives all of the air out of, um, the vent holes at the top so it's actually a pressurized seal holding that sealant in place mm-hmm. as opposed to just like if you put sealant on like an L foot or something like that and you stick it down when you stick it down you push all the flat and all of your your uh, sealant out so it's it's holding the sealant in place so you have your seal you have preserved the structural integrity of the roof and then you saved your installers a lot of time and just wear and tear you're not on your knees as much on the roof it's it's nice and so it's it's, I'd say, kind of across the board been good for folks. The homeowners are seeing less damage to their roof. They're getting better integrity with the seals that's on your roof. And then the installers are saving a ton of time and a ton of hassle. And so it's, it's I think, popular for that reason. And we've, we've since made developments on the product. Pretty soon you guys will see a, uh, a direct-to-deck version of it that allows you to either attach to a rafter or go direct-to-deck. So in that field, there's an even more streamlined version where suddenly you don't even have to find a rafter and and things like that so there's been just a lot of efficiencies while maintaining the integrity of the seal from that
1: product wow that's exciting that's a that's a big change there thanks so much for your time today this has been a great conversation and we really appreciate you being here and um sharing your knowledge with our uh our listeners
5: thank you very much for having me
0: on kate and Eric. always good to see you
1: now it's time for another tale from the roof. Today we have Chad Waits, who is the president of Net Zero Solar, so works w- closely with Lewis Wolfenden, who we just heard from, um, and he's going to tell us a story from uh, an install he did a, f- a few years ago.
4: Hey guys, so I guess I wanted to tell a little story about a project we did about six or seven years ago that I think as far as planning for and execution was one of the most difficult projects we've had for several different reasons. First of all, the client that we had was, or is kind of a mad scientist. So she lives out uh, about as far away from civilization as you could possibly get in this really cool place called Aravipa. Canyon. It's over about uh, 80 miles north and east of Tucson. The Nature Conservancy owns a bunch of property on both ends of it, uh, and it's a pretty special place for me, and that's why I was kind of drawn to the project. As we got into it, we we realized how quirky uh, of a client she was going to be to work with. Um, She had had an installation done by another company. It's a uh, a grid tie system that has battery backup. Now, um, she literally is the last service at the end of the line, end of the service line coming from uh, a local cooperative. So uh, it's not uncommon for her to have really long outages. So she had this company install this system for her, turns out we found out that she is extremely hypersensitive to noise uh, especially higher frequency noises uh, particularly ones that come out of the switching of inverters which the company that she contracted with initially put right outside of her bedroom window so she was she needed to have this equipment moved because she just could not live in the place anymore uh, because of the uh, switching noise or the the buzzing sound that was coming out of the inverter so Her project literally door to door from our office is about three and a half hours. Of that, about 65 miles of it is on an extremely bumpy, dirty, uh, dusty road. You have to cross a river to get into her house and then you have to execute a 180 degree tight bend turn that is inside of these canyon walls. But needless to say, you know, to get all this equipment out there to not only move the inverter, but also she wanted some capacity added on the cliff uh, that is adjacent to her house. There was a lot of planning that had to go into making sure that we could execute this project because it was about an hour and a half to the closest hardware store. So I slept with a notepad next to my bed for about two and a half months and I would have these thoughts in the middle of the night I'd wake up and I'd be like oh my god I gotta remember this I gotta remember a come along I gotta remember a winch I gotta remember a hammer drill um, how am I gonna get this trailer around this 180 degree bend turn with these large vans how am I gonna get my vans across the river so it was stressful it was a very stressful project not only because of the logistics and trying to execute but also because of the client that we were working for we couldn't use our hammer drills if she was on site need i mean we we have to anchor this array to a literal rock face so we had to usher her off the property have her go on a hike uh, so that we could do some of this work that you know involves power tools so months and months go we you know we're planning we're planning finally it's the time to get out there and execute The one thing that we couldn't really plan for all that well is uh, weather. And we got some weather and there's this, on this road, there's a nasty portion of it that's all clay, which is completely almost uh, unnavigable when it's wet. Uh, Somehow, you know, we (laughs) nudged our way through it, got out, were able to execute the project without having to send anyone back to the hardware store an hour and a half away. And uh, I thought one of the one of the coolest parts of this project uh, after we were all done, we stayed out on property because it was so far you know to get uh, back home. so we stayed in her guest house out on property. but uh, the last night we were there, um, so she has some local turkeys that uh, live on property. And I didn't know this, but turkeys can fly. And it turns out this little group of turkeys uh, every night does this, march up the top of this, up to the top of this cliff that's above her house. And her, you know, the river is in the, is in the little valley right below her, maybe you know, 300 yards from her house and it's full of these large cottonwood trees. So these turkeys would do this march up to the top of the cliff and then you'd see them lining up how they were going to glide over to their roosting spots in uh, the top of these uh, cottonwoods. So I thought it was kind of funny that uh you know we had spent all this time like planning and planning and planning and finally you know able to execute the project and then to have you know to watch these turkeys do this march and 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 do their planning about uh you know how they were going to glide to the place where they were going to roost for the evening i thought was was pretty funny and ironic but uh yeah thanks a lot I hope you guys are doing well and uh we'll talk to you soon That was a great story.
0: (laughs) So many wins for the net zero team, for sure.
4: (laughs) Absolutely. One
1: thing that I miss about installing and being in the field is going to those kind of locations. Sounds like such a beautiful location where they were.
0: Yeah. And, you know, to be able to, you know, make someone who is a solar enthusiast, but also really a sensitive customer and a customer that's in a sensitive location, happy with the install, happy with the work. That's just, that's fantastic that they were able to do that and make that happen for her.
1: Absolutely, it's a great crew over there at Net Zero. Did you know that turkeys could fly?
0: Yeah, short distances only, though. <laughs> sounds
1: like I they, they glide pretty well. Thank you, Chad, for that great story. And any of our listeners, if you have a story that you'd like to share with us, please uh, send it in. We have instructions in our show notes for how to submit those stories to us. And we look forward to hearing from you.